Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Angel. That's our new podcast, A Companion with the Accelerator. Both are hosted by me. I'm Michael Conniff. It's great to be back with you. We want to ask you and even urge you to um, rate our podcasts and subscribe to them. We're on all the major audio platforms, including Spotify and, um, let's see, Amazon, Audible, Apple, all the A podcasts and everything else. Also, um, video on Spotify and YouTube. So you can find us in both places or go to my website, michaelconniff.com. Um, and uh, remember to rate us and rank us and subscribe, hopefully, to us. We appreciate that. Today, um, in one of the first um, episodes of the Angel podcast, I want to welcome Nelson Chu. Hello, Nelson. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Of course. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And Nelson is, uh, you know, he is a hot podcast uh, talent because he's, <laughs> you know what I'm about to say, probably. He's smiling um, because he's hot off a fintech uh, uh, podcast at Wharton. Um so I think you're going to go from the sublime to the ridiculous. I make no pretense to knowing much about what you do, which is pretty much all in the debt market, I believe. And Don't um, worry, you're, you're the same camp as everybody else, so yeah. you're all good there. Yeah, that's what I figure. I mean, you know, uh, I had a teacher once who said, no such thing as a stupid question, and I've that's become my North Star. So I'm not afraid to ask stupid questions. Like, what's debt? No, I'm, I, don't, I think we'll be just a little north of that one. But it's great to have you, um, and um, your company is so interesting. Um, if you had to, in a nutshell, describe what Percent does, uh, how would you do that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are a pretty unique product in that we're offering a software solution that essentially takes away all the pain points of Excel, phone calls, and emails for a very specific market. You hit it on the, net, on the nail on the head. It is the private debt market, mm -hmm. uh, not just kind of general debt markets. So private debt uh, is pretty actually well understood by most people. They just don't realize it. Uh, they interact with it all the time, right? So for example, if you ever use a buy now, pay later loan, or you ever took out a small business loan that wasn't from a bank, that's private debt, right? And because these uh, lenders aren't banks, they have to actually raise money from elsewhere. So historically, that raising money from elsewhere took a bunch of conversations, a bunch of phone calls, a bunch of meetings, a bunch of Excel files being shopped around back and forth. And we streamline it all into one centralized solution for the borrowers who need the debt capital, the underwriters who structure these products, and the investors who invest in it. And how did how did you get um, the idea for this company? Accidentally. So uh, as is the case with probably most startups, ultimately. Uh, but we originally started off with the idea of just building actually a better alternative investment platform. We had the thesis that you know people were actually looking to diversify well beyond equities, doing more than just the 60-40 model. And so we thought private debt was actually an interesting asset class that no one's really touching. And as we were kind of doing it and building out the platform and offering these products to investors, we were just seeing, man, there is like no tech to speak of whatsoever. We were building our own order book systems. We're building our own compliance tools, building our own asset surveillance tools. And we were just thinking, if we're having these problems, clearly everybody else in the industry must be having these problems as well. And that's how we kind of made that evolution from just being a regular alternative investment platform into really more of like a workflow tool, software tool, something more like Bloomberg uh, than just any sort of, you know, Schwab E-Trade or anything like that. So you are a software as a service platform. Um, and um, uh, tell us tell us everything we need to know about the private debt market in, you know, less than five minutes. 
Sure. Uh, so private debt encompasses, I would say, two different segments of the market. Uh, there is the what we call asset backed side. And asset backed means that you're probably financing almost like a portfolio of loans, right? So for example, let's say there is a buy now, pay later lender. Uh, they may have a loan of 50,000 different buy now, pay later loans. You could invest in a pool of all of those loans and you're going to get interest off of how well those loans perform, right? So that's asset backed. And you also have the corporate debt side and corporate debt is kind of, it's in the name. You're pretty much investing in a product that is designed to give a loan to a single company. And so you're betting on the performance of the company or the performance of their future, essentially, if it's more of a venture backed company. Uh, so that in itself is what private debt encompasses. And it's a massive, massive market. Uh, it rose out of the great recession actually in our global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. It became a very viable solution because the banks themselves took a step back away from doing this conventional small business lending, consumer lending. And all these non-bank lenders stepped in to fill that void powered by VC money. And that's how it got to where it is today. So private debt, as it's traditionally understood, is about 1.2 trillion and growing very quickly. Private debt in terms of what our market can support, because there's a lot of different adjacent asset classes that are kind of similar, is more like $7 trillion. So we like our chances in that. Basis points off of big numbers means big numbers for us as well. Right, right. No, that, that's interesting. And gee, I wonder what happened to banks around 2008. Let me see if I can remember. Oh, yeah. They, they, they uh, got into a lot of trouble with um, subprime mortgages, um, uh, uh, CDOs, collateral debt obligations, and all kinds of... Uh, financial hoodoo. Um, and so are you designed, so so is, are you a, um, um, I know you're a three-sided market, so why don't you explain the three sides of that market to us? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and to your point around, you know, what were the banks doing? Uh, after the global financial crisis, they got slapped with a bunch of regulations and rules, actually, right, to prevent things like that from happening again. And clearly, you know, we're in a quasi-recession right now, uh, but it's not really because of the banks, uh, especially the big ones. It's actually more the regional banks that are facing some issues, which you know, we can happy to talk and about a, that. A couple of, a couple um, of uh, banks uh, called Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank. Yeah, exactly. I'm exactly. Trouble, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, but in terms of our market, right, uh, because they're not a bank, there is no balance sheet, then you have borrowers who need debt capital. So these are going to be your you know, lenders, non-bank lenders who essentially need to raise the money from somewhere to be able to finance the growth of their loan portfolios, or it's just standard corporate debt. Uh, you have underwriters. This is the one that probably is less well understood. Uh, so the reality is, you know, there was a lot of peer-to-peer -peer lending being done back in I don't know, 2014, 2015, give or take, right? You had all the lending clubs and Prospers and Avance and all those guys. And so that was literally, you were investing in individual loans or a basket of loans or something like that. And it was peer-to-peer, -peer, right? Uh, in a more traditional institutional market, you'll have an underwriter that steps in to basically package up the product and put protections in place to be able to defend the investor in the event of uh, performance that doesn't really meet expectations, essentially. Mm. So that easiest version of underwriter would be like a bank, actually, believe it or not. So the banks themselves, but very different arm of the bank, not the commercial bank side, more of the capital markets side of the bank. Uh, would be responsible for structuring these products, putting the protections in place, and then marketing it to investors and syndicating it out. And on the investor side, it's going to be who you'd expect, right? You have deals that are small that go to retail accredited investors, all the way up to the traditional asset managers like your Blackstones, KKRs, Apollos of the world uh, that do a lot of this stuff on a regular basis. Um, so very different sizes of markets, very different players in each size of the market, but very vibrant market at the very least. You know, it's interesting. You used... Um, um a phrase, non-bank. And um, I think we all think we know what a bank is. I'm not sure that 
people know what a non-bank is other than what it isn't. So how is how are banks defined and how are non-banks defined and why is this why does the distinction matter in your business? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we kind of probably all knew what a bank was until recently when, you know, SVP and, and First Republic had some challenges. Uh, but for a bank itself, there obviously is a bank charter, right? And so you have to get that. That is actually pretty challenging to get these days. There's been uh, more banks, I think, folding or getting acquired than there are new ones getting started. Uh, from a bank standpoint, it's a very easy business from a conceptual standpoint, I guess, right? You have, you take customer deposits, uh, and then you have a asset allocation management strategy that allows you to deploy into different things at varying risk levels to help you make money off those deposits, essentially, right? So um, the instance where back in the day, they were doing a lot of lending, they were doing a lot of mortgages, they were doing a lot of consumer loans, small business loans, and that was all fine, right? And that meant that the bank would make money off of the loans that was higher than the amount of interest they were paying to uh, the depositors, effectively. So pretty simple model. Uh, it's conceptually similar as well for a non-bank lender. The only difference is they don't have deposits, right? And they don't have to be subject to a bank charter, but they do have to have lending licenses in the event of, uh, if, they are, if they are in fact a non-bank lender, uh, to be able to operate in certain states and provide loans to businesses and consumers in certain states. So, so fewer, because they don't... Hmm? Fewer, excuse me, but uh, for... Yeah, no fewer, fewer regulations, no deposits, but what else makes a non-bank a non-bank? S Still a spread-based business, right? So uh, banks' cost of capital per se should be very close to zero because they're paying out minimal interest to consumers or and depositors, right? Call it used to be zero for sure. Now it's like three percent, two percent, four percent, wherever depending on where you go. Uh, but the loans that they would make are going to be in the eight, nine, ten percent range, right? So there's a nice spread there. Now, the difference is for a non-bank lender, uh, they have to raise the money from somewhere, right? And deposit, it's not going to be depositors because they don't have that to fall back on. So it's going to be a lot more expensive. So a prior to maybe the Fed raising rates, the um, cost of capital for a non-bank lender could be like, oh, I don't know, in a good way, 5 6%, in a rough way, like maybe 15 20%, something like that, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then they would make the spread against the cost they were charging to the underlying borrower, consumer, small business, right? So they might, so have, the event to, they might have to uh, charge more. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is okay in a low rate environment, but in a high rate environment, then who's bearing the brunt of it? Ultimately, it's going to be the consumers and small businesses who are the underlying borrowers. And so you're seeing rates tick up across the board, in which case, because cost of capital has come up. In which case, that means that the rates themselves that are being charged by uh, to consumers and small businesses is going to continue to tick upwards as well uh, in exchange. Well, um, um, so tell me again the three sides of the market. What's one? Sure. What's two? And what's three? Uh, borrowers who need debt capital, right? So those are going to be your non-bank lenders. You have underwriters who are probably in the larger form a bank, right? Uh, who have the skill set to be able to create mm -hmm. these structured products. And then you have the investors on the other side who want to earn a return by investing in private debt instruments that these okay. are structure. So people are um, uh, looking at private debt um, as as an, more of an alternative than I think um, even a year ago, a year or two ago when interest rates were lower. Um, and also because uh, startups, um, uh, at least this is conventional wisdom, startups have struggled um, to get the valuation that they want, the high valuation. So some of them, um, rather than take a haircut, they're they're doing debt to finance their operations, but um, but not affect their valuation directly. Do I have that right? 
That's exactly right. Yeah. Interesting times for sure in the private debt markets. And you're seeing a lot of the activity pick up. Mm -hmm. uh, you have seen, you know, obviously Blackstone, KKR, the big guys uh, and Apollo focus on private debt in this time of market dislocation because they do see a lot of opportunity there. There's uh, mispriced assets and things like that. You're also seeing a lot of transactions happening. JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs just are thinking about launching uh, syndication desks, right, to be able to market private debt instruments. Mm -hmm. And so that's all kind of good tailwinds for us. Uh, but to your point around the venture side, on the venture equity front, definitely challenging. That is for sure. And I think startups are feeling the brunt of it. Uh, and that's making for a situation where venture debt becomes a viable alternative mm -hmm. to bridge them to their next round of financing uh, without taking that haircut and essentially hopefully growing into that valuation, right? And that they mm -hmm. raise at the last go round. So you're seeing a lot of that at the moment. And we are seeing a lot of venture debt activity at this mm -hmm. time. Well, Bill Gross of Idea Lab says uh, timing is the most important ingredient in a startup. So your timing seems to be pretty good, but but this did not happen overnight. Um, you've been in business, I think, for five years, right? And um, one of the things I really wanted to get into with you is um, you said the first four years, you essentially had to create one side of this market and that you did, I think you said over 400 deals for mm -hmm. a total of $1.2 billion. Yep. Um, number one, that seems like a pretty complicated and expensive way to start a company. <laughs> but, but how did you manage to find the capital or the debt to do that? How did you do that? Yeah, absolutely. So putting on my VC hat for a moment, uh, yeah. the first thing they'll tell you is two-sided markets are very challenging. Three-sided markets don't even bother, right? And we knew that going into it as well. And so if we were going to be successful in this instance, then we'd have to at least take down one of the sides ourselves. And I'll be the first to admit, we were not private debt experts by any stretch of the imagination, right? Not many people actually are. Uh, what we did have was at least from a team standpoint, a lot of people who had debt capital markets experience on the public side. So it's almost like, let's take a public market lens to private debt and see if we can create something that's pretty unique in this space. What does that mean when you say a public market lens? Tell me what, exactly what that means. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to public debt markets, it's actually pretty well understood and it functions really well, right? There's not much you need to change on that side. There's a lot of transparency. There's a lot of standardization. There's good governance. And it comes from the fact that there's a lot of standards built into it. So there's market standards, for example, right? All the deals are structured pretty easily, pretty simply and pretty similarly in the grand scheme of things to the point where someone can issue a $1 billion bond on the public debt markets and it closes in like three days, right? That's like pretty crazy. Uh, and you have ratings agencies that can come in and look at a structure and say, oh, yeah, this is going to be an investment grade product or that's going to be a high yield product. So it just works in that regard. There's also data standards that are required here because these are public companies. So you actually have to have audited financials. You can't get away without that. And if that's the case, then there's a basically a baseline of how to compare one public debt company from another public issuer from another public issuer. And that makes life a lot easier. And because the deal sizes are fairly consistent, you always know who plays in the space. You know which public companies are issuing the debt and borrowing the money. You know which investment banks are going to help you. And you know which credit funds and asset managers are going to buy this stuff. So it's all kind of working very efficiently. And it's a $52 trillion market that doesn't need a whole lot of changing. The private debt markets don't have any of that, right? There are no market standards. Every single deal is structured differently because no one's come together and said, yeah, this is the way it should be done. There's no data standards because these aren't public companies without requirements for reporting. So everyone just kind of reports whatever they want to report. And then because the deal sizes can be as small as 50 grand, and we can attest to that because the smallest deal we ever did was 50 grand and can be as large as 500 million. We can attest to that too, because we've done a few hundred million plus transactions. The reality is there's very different players in that space and no one has a single system to kind of find each other. And so it's very, very disjointed. 
so taking that public market lens, like I was mentioning, and bringing those market standards, those data standards, those participants together in a formalized fashion is going to completely transform this market for the better. And we think that it's $7 trillion today with us at the helm. It should be a $9, $10, $11 trillion market easily with the efficiencies, the transparency, and all those things are bringing to the table. So interesting. Now, let's talk about individual deals so people can understand this better and so I can understand it better. So um, give us an example of, let's call it a prototypical deal that you've done in the first five years of your existence that will kind of demonstrate um, the power of the marketplace, the power of the platform you're, you're building. Sure, absolutely. So no names basis, but at least let's give a generic model of sort of who this could be. Uh, we do have several small business lenders on the platform, right? And they are, many of them are venture-backed. Some of them are not venture-backed. It doesn't really make a difference at the end of the day. It just comes down to the underlying portfolio performance. Uh, but let's say we have a small business lender and they're getting off the ground. They're, you know, call it a year or two in business. And they have a loan portfolio that needs about one to $2 million in capital, right? And so we will finance that. We'll essentially provide the investors and, the, and pair them up with an underwriter that knows how to do small business lending and structuring those products. And then they'll raise their one and a half to two million. That works for them for call it three months, six months, something like that, before they go out of it. They grow out of it, right? They need now five million uh, because their loan portfolio keeps growing, performance is good, everyone's happy with it. So they come back out and refinance and raise now five million on the platform using the same underwriter, using probably the same types of investors. And it keeps growing, growing, growing. Over the course of a few years, there's going to reach a point where retail credit investors powering two, five, ten million dollars isn't really the right fit anymore, right? And that underwriter is probably not, not the right fit anymore either. And so they're going to grow a little bit bigger, and they're going to want institutional capital. And so we have the off ramp for them to basically get paired with probably someone who's more like an investment bank uh, to be able to kind of do that type of work. And then they will have no shortage of credit funds who like this type of paper and get them larger and larger to the point mm -hmm. where they can probably reach the point where they can do a rated transaction down the line. So the ability to essentially see a borrower who could be a small business lender, consumer lender, general company through their entire debt capital markets lifecycle is sort of our biggest value prop here. They don't need to go anywhere else. We can always find them the on ramps, and the off ramps, take them to that next level uh, and be very successful. And uh, don't the or wouldn't the investment banks, um, I at least the top part of what you're doing, the higher end of what you're doing, if, if the path is that you grow and then you need an investment bank, wouldn't they be saying, hey, you know, we can make money a little further down the food chain? That's exactly right. Yeah, because the, I guess, not so dirty secret about private credit and just credit in general is that the amount of effort historically to do a uh, $5 million deal is the same as a $50 million deal is the same as a $500 million deal. So for an investment bank, the desire to do a 50 or $5 million deal goes down significantly given the amount of effort it takes. With technology, though, which is what they never had before, the ability to facilitate and help with the sourcing process and finding these borrowers who are vetted, the ability to get better at structuring because a lot of these things are templated and boilerplate and there's legal tech there to go along with that, the ability to easily syndicate it out uh, to an audience that's captive and be able to monetize that and then not have to deal with anything that's related to everything after the close, whether it's monitoring or servicing the deal and getting the cash flows and things like that. We take so much work off their mm -hmm. hands that it actually becomes profitable to do a $50 million deal or a $5 million deal. And for the investment bank, they can now build that relationship much earlier on in the borrower's life. So the borrower doesn't have wandering eyes later and they know to stay with that investment bank as they get larger and becomes more uh, ingrained in the core of the, IB, the bank's business. So the bank goes on, uh, pardon me, the, the, the borrower goes on the percent platform looking to, let's, to raise, let's say, $5 million and, um, and is therefore exposed to the other 
players on the platform um, uh, who who could actually invest in in these deals, right? So they say you want to raise five million dollars. Um, I, I want to invest five million dollars, and then the borrower would go out and invest that money, right? Invest that debt. Um, and I'm I'm just thinking out loud here, but then mm-hmm. would charge a higher percentage than what he whatever he's borrowing at, mm-hmm. and that's the spread. And he splits that with the he shares that with the um, the investor. Mm-hmm. Is that is that close exactly? To yes, uh, you are missing that underwriter that plays in the middle. So investors okay. don't directly get matched with the with the borrower uh, because investors also don't want to invest in a naked loan or naked loan portfolio, right? Okay. They need protections in place to be able to help them in the event. So of tell us about the underwriter. Tell us about that side of the triangle. Yeah, so the underwriters themselves are going to be you know credit funds, banks themselves who are experts in the space in that specific asset class. So the borrower, when they join the platform, get exposed to various different underwriters that might be a good fit for them based on what they specialize in, right? Uh, what's interesting is, I guess, in, now that we are a fully three-sided market, underwriters themselves are actually bringing borrowers themselves onto the platform. So they, oftentimes, they'll come with five to 10 borrowers. They want to help support those of their clients. But we also kind of bolster their pipeline with various different borrowers that have come to us organically. So that's a very good flywheel that we have built here. Uh, the underwriters themselves are just skilled at what they do, right? They know based on an underlying borrower's performance as a company, as a lender, they can figure out a structure that works, that will provide the right protections for the investor and also figure out how to price it in a way they know will get demand. And we give them a lot of tooling to be able to do that in terms of market data, demand data, uh, rate data that we have that just no one else really has based on all the deals that we've done to give to arm them with as much information as possible to be the best partner for the under for the borrower as they can be and ultimately to be the best underwriter of the product for what investors are looking for at that point in time so they are the ones who put in the the legwork to make it investable essentially so they're essential are, are so our underwriters are typically at uh, uh brokerage firms investment banks where do, where do they live yeah so for example all your major investment banks have underwriting teams they have structured credit teams right so jp morgan bank of america city morgan stanley would et this be considered structured credit yes yeah this okay. would sit with the structured credit desk yeah okay. uh they also have the smaller guys like the boutiques um your piper sandlers your stiefels your jeffries those guys are also very good in this space they just play at a size that's a little bit smaller than what the big guys do right and then you have various different emerging managers, credit funds who are looking for opportunities to find new, new borrowers and also potentially to take down some positions and syndicate out the rest because they can't handle the entire $10 million tranche. They can only handle five that we become a great outlet for them as well. And they are obviously very good at what they do. So there are thousands of underwriters out there in various different shapes and sizes, uh, but they all can get the benefit in some way, shape or form of the technology and the workflow that we built. So you're you're. Um... Five years in, I guess, just about, and um, heading, <clears throat> heading into a Series B round for yourself for Percent. Is that right? Which, That's by the, the way, uh, I, told you, I told you before, I love the name Percent. It's such a <laughs> thank you, such an obvious name, but you know, it's a good one. So, um, um, where do you stand on that, and where where are you in kind of your company life cycle? Yeah, absolutely. We've raised three rounds of financing so far: so a pre-seed round, a seed round, and a Series A. Uh, we are on the tail end of the Series B process. Hopefully, by the time this publishes, I may, can, I may be able to make a revision and say we're done with the process. But, you know, like we talked about, venture equity right now is an interesting market to be playing in. Uh, but we've seen a lot of success and a lot of tailwinds just by virtue of the fact that I think private credit is on the tip of everyone's tongue right now, especially in light of the SVB situation. We had set like over 200 startups reach out to us and our partners over that weekend and needing bridge financing, needing senior secure term loan financing, right? And we are the only real shop on the street that has 
the legal technology, the structure, uh, and the overall infrastructure to support underwriters and investors deploying money and putting it to work. So by the end of that weekend, before the Treasury Department stepped in and thankfully saved probably the entire global financial system, uh, they we had you know over 25 borrowers ready to go with about 50 million plus in capital uh, that was ready to deploy on Monday morning to help them out and help them hit payroll and all that stuff. So with, yeah, with that in mind, I think a lot of VCs recognize the power and potential of what Percent has built and also the incredible value that private credit has uh, in the coming years. Were the, um, the startups, because that's sort of the world I'm more familiar with. Um, so what kind of terms would the startups get in a situation like that? Yeah, so these aren't deposit claims, right? And that actually got a lot of flack, rightfully so. Uh, there were lots of different groups that were saying, oh, I'll buy your deposits from you for 60, 70 cents on the dollar. Oh, and then really? if once recovery happens, you're not seeing any of that, right? You're basically just took a 67% yeah. haircut on your bank account. Yeah. And that's just, I think, not fair, right? Uh, in this instance, then, uh, you'd basically have uh, a, a startup who's saying, I need to just bridge myself till whenever this gets resolved. And they're going to pay some sort of interest rate. I think different investors have different interest rates. We saw a pretty wide range, to be honest. Uh, but that's kind of the nature of a free market, right? If they see that um, there's not enough demand at a certain rate, then they're going to drop the rate because they know that they're not being competitive. So you saw that dynamic play out over that weekend. Uh, but effectively, in that instance, once the situation would have gotten resolved at some point and the deposits came back to them, uh, they would just pay down the loan in its entirety. And the only thing they would be out would be the interest, basically. And so that's a much more friendly solution than losing 30, 40 cents on the dollar from right. selling your deposit claims right. to somebody else. And how about convertible notes? How do they play into to this, into your platform? Yeah, that's uh, a different form of bridge financing. I think that wasn't really what we were offering. Convertible notes tend to actually convert into equity in the next round of financing. Right. It's more expensive, that's actually. Your, that's not your yeah. yeah, way more expensive than yeah. just regular debt, right? So it's a different approach. Okay. And um, I wanted to ask you, we've got a couple minutes left. So... Um, it seems you've done a, a really good job of um, creating the company, building it up, uh, getting it to this point. So what's, um, what's your dream scenario from this point forward? Say for the next, it could be for the next year, the next five years, whatever your, whatever your horizon is. What do you think about? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think um, we didn't go into this thinking there'd be a four or five year journey, right? I think any company who's trying to make real transformational change in an industry that is so sorely lacking that uh, for decades is going to take a long time. There's a lot of incumbents, like you had mentioned earlier. Um, there's the inertia, like ways of doing things, right, naturally, that just are a problem, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that will have to be a hurdle that needs to be crossed over, and that just takes time. So it was always a 10-year journey when we started this process. I would love nothing more to your point around the fact that we have a good name. I think Percent can be a, a company and a name that will live on for a long time. Uh, I would love nothing more than to be able to turn this into a profitable company, which we have a line of sight into, and also be able to take a company public, right? Like that is, I think, the dream of many founders. Um, and I think given what we've built and the traction that we have and how timely it is and how much of a need private debt is going to be and grow for in the next coming years, I think we're well positioned to be able to do that. But it is a multi, multi-year journey from here uh, that we knew when we signed up for it, this is what it was going to be like. And um, and what are what are revenues like and, and what's your um, what's your full time team look like? Yeah. So uh, historically, revenues have been interesting, right, because we were the only underwriter really on the platform. And there's a almost like a human capital limitation on how much you can generate from a revenue standpoint, because there's only that many people that can support that many deals or that many borrowers. And you're going to be capped in that regard. 
now that this year has happened and we basically said, okay, we're not doing any more new underwriting. It's all underwriters coming on board and doing the work and taking advantage of technology and the efficiencies and all of that. We've seen revenue tick up dramatically, right? So this year we are expected to more than double our revenue. And we're also expected to more than triple our top line, uh, for, sorry, our triple our ARR in that instance. And that's just proof that the technology is really working and delivering the scalability that we're looking for. Uh, we were actually very fortunate uh, for 2022, even despite us being the only underwriter, we were ranked uh, Inc.'s actually top 15 fastest growing company in the Northeast. So, you know, oh. things are trending in the right direction. But if we can double top line and triple ARR, that's going to be even better for us this year, for sure. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And then from a team standpoint, uh, we are, I think we had the <laughs> unenviable position of running both an investment bank as well as a tech company all in one, which is not the best mm. in terms of burn rate, just in general. Uh, those are both very expensive propositions. Uh, but the reality is it was necessary to get us where we are today, right? And so at this point, then from a kind of team composition mix standpoint for our close to 50 people, uh, we have heavy on engineering and product, which makes sense, right? About half the company is that. I would say about 20% of the company, it fits into that commercial side of the business, give or take. And the rest of it is going to be your core, you know, marketing, operations, um, corporate stuff and things like that. Right. Uh, so yeah. as a tech company, heavy on product engineering is, is probably the way to be. Absolutely. Now, you definitely avoided my question about revenues. Um, can you be specific? Uh, at this point, we don't really announce that that frequently. Uh, but I think uh, okay. it's something that I think once we get to a certain scale and the technology itself proves itself out, we'd be more happy to talk about that. But yeah, I, but I, uh, astute I, observation. I, I had to ask you, Nelson, or it was either that or turn in my press card. You know, fair, or, fair. Or, yes. Or like give up any semblance to actually having been a journalist or. or, or but I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't dance around it diplomatically. It, so, it, yes. 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 Uh, well, I, I appreciate this is your very um, articulate spokesman, uh, spokesperson for the company. The company is percent. Um, I want to uh, remind everybody you've been listening to The Angel, a new podcast from the people who brought you the accelerator, um, mainly me, Michael Conniff and uh, the people behind the scenes. Um, we are going to focus on the money people like Nelson and um, people who make uh, those deals possible on this podcast. Accelerator will still be startups, founders, entrepreneurs, and look much like you've come to know it. And we've done over 50 of those. And I think this is the third or fourth or fifth uh, angel. I, I've already lost count, which is a new record for losing count. But um, I want to also remind everybody to... Um, uh, subscribe, rate us on all the major podcast platforms. Also find us on YouTube video and uh, Spotify video and audio. So subscribe and tell your friends and uh, by all means, tell us what you think. So um, uh, with that said, I want to thank Nelson Chu. He is the founder and CEO of Percent uh, for being with us. Thanks again, Nelson, and uh, best of luck to you. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Really appreciate yeah. you having me. A lot of fun. You're a great guest. Uh, this is The Angel. I'm Michael Conniff. And as I like to say, on both podcasts, we'll be back before you know it.